This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Friday, January 1st, 2021. I'm Caleb Brown, and Happy New Year. How has campaign finance changed since the famous or infamous Citizens United decision that freed up some spending in elections? And how do voter attitudes drive legislative efforts to restrict spending in elections? David Primo and Jeff Milo are authors of Campaign Finance and American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. We spoke late last year. Careful listeners uh, to the Cato Daily Podcast will note that uh, I never fail to point out when we're talking about campaign finance issues is that uh, the public... Uh, or at least people who talk about uh, Citizens United, almost, including the news media, who who really should be more attuned to what the implications of that case are for them, uh, fundamentally do not understand what that case was about uh, and what the Supreme Court said. So uh, just using that as, as an example, what do we know about what the public thinks about campaign finance issues, so I'll take I'll take that one. Um, you know, both Dave Primo and I have have studied money and politics for many years, and it's fair to say that the general public has this conventional wisdom that there's too much money in politics, that elective offices are essentially for sale to the highest bidder, that campaign contributions are the functional equivalent of bribes that all of this alienates the public, results in declining trust, and uh, leads to corruption in politics, and and as a result, that there's a great need for campaign finance reform to preserve the integrity of democracy. And um, in addition to just asserting that that's a conventional wisdom in our book, we we conduct a survey of the general public, and and sure enough, these kinds of propositions, people agree. Um, uh, in fact, the 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 level of agreement is uh, on the order of eighty nine percent or more agree that, for example, elections are essentially for sale to the highest bidder, to the biggest spender. And if uh, anyone's familiar with survey research, if you were to ask people, are you taking a survey? You probably wouldn't get 89% agreeing. So it's really um, quite a very strongly held conventional wisdom among the public. And there are uh, a a whole host of politicians who are very happy to reinforce that view. It's not just politicians. Um, we we also have reform groups uh, that that are sustained by this belief that money is a corrupting force in American politics. The news media, uh, which reports about campaign finance uh, in a very particular way, emphasizing uh, the extremes of campaign finance, uh, and quite often just asserting without evidence that, uh, for instance, if a if a politician receives money from an interest group, therefore that money has somehow uh, influenced how that politician is behaving. That is a dominant view uh, among members of the public. Uh, what did you dig into to find out whether or not that's true? So I'll go with um, the second conventional wisdom that we identify is that among those of us who actually study the role of money in American politics, there's a very different view. And this comes from 
decades of social science research looking at the efficacy of campaign spending on electoral outcomes, on the efficacy of campaign contributions and lobbying, on the outcomes of the policy process. And, um, you know, we could talk at length about those studies. And often there's this core of true believers who just don't want to believe the science. And and I almost get enjoyment out of believing American politics is very corrupt. So we hit upon the idea of rather than us just being the messengers and people dismissing it as maybe these idiosyncratic cranks uh, with this bizarre take on the science, we did a survey of experts who study money and politics and conduct peer-reviewed scientific studies. And that survey basically reveals just about the opposite on most of those uh, conventional wisdoms that that campaign spending is not that effective, especially at the margin among competitive candidates, that campaign contributions and lobbying are not the functional equivalent of bribes, and uh, and that campaign spending doesn't result in declining trust in government. Um, the group tends to be favorable of reform nonetheless, because it, uh, academics do tend to be a very uh, liberal activist and progressive uh, group. But um, but there are two conventional wisdoms about money and politics. There's the scientific consensus, and then there's that that fearful uh, public consensus. You know, when you when you look at what the experts think, I was really struck by, really surprised by the fact that there was this belief among experts based on the scientific evidence that money is not corrupting, uh, that it is not that campaign contributions are not the functional equivalent of bribes, as, as Jeff said, yet. The, the academics, by and large, support campaign finance reform. Um, and for me, at least, that, that result brought to light just how much of a, a deep-seated belief there is in the evils of money, that even evidence to the contrary about money's nefarious force in the process isn't going to change people's, even experts' belief systems about just how important reform is. It's this amorphous need to fix democracy. When when people say that they support campaign finance reform, um, I'm trying to thread the needle here between what the public believes and what experts believe. Uh, is it just that they don't want uh, the appearance of the potential corrupting influence of money, even if uh, your research indicates that that's not a strong a claim that that occurs? Well, the public is of is of two minds here. You know, when you ask whether they think campaign finance reform is necessary to restore the integrity of American democracy, they say yes, absolutely, hundred percent. Let's let's go for it. But when you ask the question a slightly different way, when you ask members of the public, do you think that campaign finance reforms are going actually going to have any effect on how politics operates? Uh, you get very, very different results, much more skepticism about whether or not reforms can actually be effective. Um, so again, that goes back to my point about this: there, there being this deep-seated belief that somehow campaign finance reform is going to be a magic elixir. But when you actually force people to say, is this actually going to fix anything? Uh, then you get a lot more, you get a lot more pushback, which to me at least reveals uh, a, a deep-seated cynicism among the American public that runs far deeper than money. That money is just a convenient bogeyman. It's a boogeyman. It's a very convenient target for uh, for the efforts of reformers, and the public has has largely bought into that narrative. Uh, but the public's more pragmatic in the, at the end of the day, and they realize, you know, this isn't going to fix what's wrong with politics. Jeff, 
And and just to um, um, add to that point, once we start talking about corruption and the public's views of corruption, we need to answer the question, what is corruption? And the Supreme Court, and or at least the majority on the Supreme Court, has been fairly clear and consistent that what we mean by corruption is, is essentially bribery and influence peddling, quid pro quo exchanges of money for political favors, and not sort of normal everyday politics where politicians try to win the favor of various interest groups by making pleasing sounding arguments and, and the like. And so the when you look at public opinion that says, well, people think think money in politics is corrupt, or you give them a scenario and they say, ah, oh, that's corrupt. It turns out that the general public thinks almost everything politicians do is corrupt, whether it's trying to get favorable media coverage, whether it's log rolling or vote trading, whether it's pressure from party leaders. Even if you present a, an innocent scenario where a, where a legislator votes against the preferences of his constituents because of a belief that it's the best thing for the country, you still get about a quarter respondent saying that's corrupt too. There's just you know nothing politicians can do that people don't think is is pretty suspicious and corrupt, and all the more so. And 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 we go on uh, at length with some evidence on this, but it's it's not too surprising. All the more so if I'm a Democrat, I view anything Republicans do as corrupt, and if I'm a Republican, anything the Democrats do is viewed as corrupt. So there's a deep suspicion, but then there's also this deep partisanship, this partisan lens through which people view politics and call basically anyone who disagrees with them. They call that corrupt. One claim that I have heard, and it's uh, it's the only place I've heard it, um, Lawrence Lessig used to make uh, the claim that, uh, and uh, again, it, he speaks often in, in ways that indicate that he's the first person to look at a lot of this stuff, but uh, he made the claim that, look, the relevant uh, point at which uh, this influence occurs is not during a campaign that it's before the campaign even starts, that money uh, is either promised or is uh, in escrow, in a sense, until somebody decides to run or not run. And that's where the big sort occurs when it comes to candidates for political office. You know, Larry Lessig has a very uh, uh, ex an expansive definition of corruption. Uh, it's not not in some senses not unlike uh, the, the the expansive definition of corruption that the American public has, and and it's almost sort of an ethereal theory of corruption where corruption just suffuses Washington and it suffuses state legislatures. It's just everywhere. It's in the air, um, and so you just can't help but being corrupt by virtue of being in Washington. And what's difficult for 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 me and 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 for social scientists uh, to to deal with a theory like that is it's very hard to actually understand that in, in any empirical sense. To just say that the whole thing is is corrupt, right? Well, I, I don't know any that the term corruption really has much meaning at that point, and 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 so I don't quite know what to do with uh, with with Larry Lessig's theories, um, in that they just seem to be so all encompassing in terms of it, their beliefs about what's corrupt uh, that there isn't really a lot you can get a handle on from a scientific perspective. And and so there are two issues with this what we might call miasma theory of corruption that it's it's just in the air. One is that um, a, a, as Dave said, it's hard to get a handle on it. But then 
you know, we can go to the evidence and we could say, you know, has the miasma cleared up if we if we adopt campaign finance reform? We can test those kinds of hypotheses. But I have to uh, I have to put on my my professor uh, hat and gown here for a moment and say, you know, Lessig is an extreme example, and and many campaign finance reformers are, of of what we might call a a literally romantic notion of democracy that there's a general will, and the purpose of democratic institutions is to implement this general will, and it's sort of taken as given that um, the that that everyday politics and vote trading and party pressure and money in politics is somehow distorting this otherwise pure implementation of the of the general will and you know again decades of social science research would tell us that collectives don't have an individual will like that there's no such thing as the general will and um, and so once you understand democracy as a process by which collective decisions are arrived at and that that campaign spending lobbying you know appeals to the public are all the engine of democracy and that re- they require resources and coordination and political entrepreneurs then you see this more dynamic process that isn't so nefarious uh, but Lessig and others have this notion that people people are well formed fully informed citizens, knowledgeable about all issues, and we just need to count noses and and implement what the general will is, as if people come into this world like Athena, fully armored from Zeus's head, instead of being rationally ignorant and and arguments having to be made and interests having to be coordinated and, and a more active, dynamic view of democracy. Yeah, when you uh, present this idea that uh, that if the pu- the public may believe that uh, offices are for sale to the highest bidder, that definitely leaves one group out of the process of uh, achieving high office, and that is voters. Um, if you look at the uh, Bloomberg for President campaign, how much did he spend for almost nothing? If I can build on 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 Jeff's point a little bit, sort of, and the Bloomberg point I think ties in nicely nicely with this is 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 again there's this belief out there that somehow if we can get campaign finance reform, we'll get the the right outcomes, right? And so, and I think Bloomberg would largely believe you know, if if we, if we can just spend a, a lot of money, sort of the opposite view, we can we can we can get the right outcomes. Um, but but what are the right outcomes? Well, if, I encourage the audience to look carefully when when reformers call for campaign finance reform or politicians call for campaign finance reform, they often will identify specific policy outcomes that when achieved would prove to be evidence of how successful reform was. In other words, we need campaign finance reform so that we can have climate change legislation that uh, you know that, that eliminates oil and gas so that we can have universal health care. And then they list a set of policy proposals that Many people would agree with, but many people would disagree with, but assert that that would, of course, be the will of the people if we just got rid of money in politics. And that, that is, the, these are the baseline views, the uncorrupted views of Americans. Correct. Well, uh, when we look at uh, the evidence here, you guys draw a pretty bright line between uh, before Citizens United and after Citizens United at, at a, a couple of different spots in your book, uh, at least. What do we know about the rate of incumbency? for uh, politicians 
pre and post Citizens United? And does that tell us anything with confidence? Well, I'll grab that one. Um, you know, in general, um, political scientists and political economists have studied the relationship between campaign finance laws and competitiveness of elections. And not not part of the book, but a recent study I had that just came out this summer does that at the at the level of the states where we can use the states as laboratories because there are very different campaign finance regulations across the states. They change over time. And the bottom line is that campaign finance reform um, does not make elections for state legislature more competitive, um, and in particular, um, independent expenditures. Uh, some states had had prohibited uh, independent expenditures prior to Citizens United. Now they can't. Uh, and, and if we look at that, what we actually see is an increase in competitiveness and more turnover of incumbents. So at least at the state level, you see that. But I don't think there's any credible argument that politics has become less competitive since 2010. If anything, it appears very much just the opposite. Yeah. One of the things that uh, when I talk to people who don't follow this this stuff very closely, and I, I don't follow it nearly as closely as you guys do, uh, and this was something I learned from a practitioner of of politics years ago, which is uh, an incumbent uh, politician, low name ID in his district may well be an asset to his campaign. <laughs> and that is uh, an opponent, an upstart opponent uh, who would like to challenge them, raising their opponent's name ID. Uh, to sort of shape them in the public's eye as a as a, as a bad guy uh, is an asset to their campaign. Well, w- one of the I mean, if you think about Citizens United and and its effect on campaigns, I mean, one of the I mean, the the, the claims that were made after Citizens United about what would happen to American democracy, um, I I really wish that those claims were being, those who made those claims were being held to account a little bit more. Um, Claims that democracy was going to be destroyed, claims that corporations are going to take over the political process, uh, that, you know, we would, that elections were essentially, you know, just, just artificial, uh, artificial enterprises at this point, because the outcomes were, were, were predetermined, were going to be predetermined by the money. Um, You know, that, that trust in government would plummet. None of this has come to pass. Uh, none of it has come to pass. And yet uh, th- that decision, sort of like the belief in campaign finance reform, has itself taken on a mythical status. Citizens United is no longer really just a Supreme Court decision. It is a call to arms, right? It, it, it is, it is, a, it is, it is a, 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 a call for uh, campaign finance reform, for, for changes to the system and so on. I remember uh, one hyperbolic commentator uh, referring to Citizens United as the Dred Scott decision of our time. And uh, even then, that struck me as ludicrous. The sense of proportionality uh, or lack of proportionality was was, was stunning in, in, in that comment. Yes. So w- with respect to uh, competitive elections, uh, you know, th- there are all these anecdotes you can pluck out of the air and say, well, this happened in-, in this race and this proves X. And of course, that's not what you guys are doing in your book. You're taking a far more systematic approach. But did any of your thoughts get updated by what happened in uh, 2016, 2018 and 2020? That is, Donald Trump was heavily outspent in uh, 2016 and cobbled together enough electoral votes to win the White House. 
Yeah, no, I would say, you know, we've been like John the Baptist all along and more people are coming to realize, uh, you know, from anecdotes like that, what the science has been saying all along. Um, and, and so that, that episode was very, uh, was very helpful in, in that regard and, and Bloomberg's campaign as well, you know, that clearly to, um, to win votes, you need more than just advertising. You need content, you need ideas, you need, you need to be a credible, uh, to the public that you're going to be a good representative and, uh, all the money in the world or pretty close to it isn't going to get you many delegates in the democratic primary, um, despite what some, uh, you know, demagogues have to say about it. The way I think about it is, you know, that you need you need a certain amount of money to run a viable presidential campaign. There's no doubt about that. Um, but fundamentally, if you don't have a product that's going to sell, quote unquote, then the, the amount of money in your ad budget isn't going to make a difference. And we can look at products in in American society, major flops uh, of, of, of products that had billions or millions. Uh, of dollars behind them, uh, but none of the marketing worked because the products were fundamentally uh, fundamentally bad products. Um, and so, if you are if if you don't have a great candidate, uh, the amount of money you spend just isn't going to isn't 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 going to be enough to to push you over the edge to win in many cases. And and just to um, to to jump on that point and extend it, I mean, this is what economists would call diminishing marginal productivity. So let's be clear: if I were to run for office. And not spend much money, I wouldn't get a very high percent of the vote. And if I spent a lot of money, I might double my share of the vote from 2% to 4%. But that's not going to win elective office. And so when you're talking about contested elections with candidates that have been endorsed by parties and have uh, the resources of the parties behind them, um, the, the marginal productivity of campaign spending is very, very low. And, uh, and so that, that reverberates. That means that when a candidate gets a contribution from a political action committee of, say, $5,000 or even an independent expenditure in a contested Senate race by a, from a super PAC that might run a million dollars, that the candidate's not going to be very grateful for those expenditures because they really don't have much of an impact at the margin on the electoral prospects of the candidate. And so that feeds back to this issue of, well, just how influential are campaign contributions or super PAC expenditures? And most of the evidence would say not very influential. And, and that's part of the reason why. Now, we should clarify a little bit. Contributions uh, from PACs to campaigns are under the control of the campaign. Independent expenditures by law cannot be under the control or direction or coordination of the campaign. Those are expenditures that are made based upon very likely a completely separate reading of polls and uh, what the public is going to respond to and what what voters might be interested in in order to get X candidate uh, into office. Uh, so uh, you made this uh, sort of reference to the marginal productivity of uh, independent expenditures, Jeff, and why don't why don't donors know this, or why are donors not responsive to this? I mean, money pours into super PACs in, in an attempt to influence elections. One would think that uh, these donors, who presumably have a lot of money in order to give it, are should be smarter about uh, where their money goes if they want to influence public policy. 
well, maybe after they read our book, they will be smarter. But, uh, you know, we don't have to assume that everybody knows everything. But but I think the better understanding of, you know, people who get involved in politics, are they doing it because they're trying to bribe politicians and corruptly influence policy? No, they're doing it because they're they're sincere. They're patriots. They want to be you know, in the game, on the team, whether it's the blue team or the red team, and they sincerely support those positions, they're giving their time, their resources. And these are all, I think, admirable things and all necessary for a well-functioning democracy. So donors are giving not because they're trying to buy policy, but they're trying to support like-minded candidates, a like-minded party, and, and to bring about, in their mind, better public policy. And, and so it's not so surprising that, that people with a lot of discretionary income or wealth uh, get some utility out of those kinds of activities. And another way to, to think about it is that, you know, there are some forms of campaign spending may be more effective than other forms of campaign spending. Uh, but those who have those who run campaigns often are paid based on how much they spend. So in other words, if you do an ad buy, if, if you're a campaign manager, or you're a consultant, and you do an ad buy, you get a cut of the, you know, get a percentage of the ad buy. So what does that do? That creates incentives to structure campaigns in a way that may actually not be particularly efficient. So that's one reason we might see this paradox. Another reason is that um, even if at the margin, campaign spending doesn't have much of an effect. Um, you don't quite know, um, you know, there might be this competitive aspect where campaigns are going to keep spending money until they get to that point where the money isn't having much of a, an effect. So at the margin, it's not having any effect, but if they spent nothing at all, well, then their candidate wouldn't do, wouldn't do very well. And so there's this competitive effect as well. Uh, but you know, there, there, you know, there's a literature in, in advertising that shows that a lot of advertising uh, for products doesn't really have that much um, that much of an effect yet companies still have ad budgets. So there's old habits sometimes die hard. And it's, it's worth emphasizing that, you know, when you're spending other people's money, there's a lot of room for waste, fraud and abuse and, and for people to take a cut of the pie. And so that happens in government spending in general, it happens in, in political campaigns. Um, and so definitely some of that is, is, is happening. When you see an individual putting up their own money like Bloomberg, that's more like, you know, a fool in his money. So uh, that's that's those are the kind of candidates that we could educate. The big pitch here is that if you are part of the moneyed donor class in politics, uh, take a small portion of what you would be giving in 2022, buy this book and potentially save yourself many thousands of dollars in uh, super PAC contributions and campaign contributions. Is that basically the pitch? Well, I, I go back to what Jeff said, is that, you know, it depends on why you're you're involved in politics. Maybe, for instance, you, you know, you're spending, you know, you're, you're, you create a super PAC because you want to make sure that a candidate's message gets out there so that people are aware that this candidate has these views of it or represents a, a, a set of views that isn't represented well in American politics. So, so, you know, it, you know, we've all been beating on Michael Bloomberg here a little bit, but what Michael Bloomberg, you know, perhaps was trying to do is, in, is say, look, if I run for office, I may, he may know he's going to, he's going to lose, but he's hoping that perhaps the issues that are important to him will now get some attention in ways they wouldn't otherwise. 
you think about that as the Ross Perot effect, perhaps, um, and that can have an that can have an impact. So you know, it, 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 it in some sense focusing on the efficacy of campaign spending almost you know plays into the narrative that the only reason why people could possibly contribute to campaigns is because they want to influence the process. Or, or or influence outcomes directly, whereas there could be lots of different reasons why you might contribute to a campaign. And let's, I mean, we've been beating on reformers as well, but let's um, let's uh, throw them a bone here. I think there there is something of an awakening in the campaign finance reform movement where there is a little less emphasis on demonizing money in politics. I mean, that's still done, of course, but um, more toward trying to encourage more people to contribute and to encourage small donations, encourage more ordinary citizens to vote. And if we go back to that idea of diminishing marginal productivity, how do you get sort of the big donors and the big donations to be less influential? You don't restrict total spending. You want to encourage more uninterested money to flow into campaigns, if you will. And so the more ordinary citizens participate and are active and make contributions, the less influential um, a, a, f- a few uh, money bags are going to be. David Primo and Jeff Milo are authors of Campaign Finance and the American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 